Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we are welcoming to the SASPOT Radhika Kohl, PhD student in the Division of Literatures, Cultures and Languages at Stanford, working on a dissertation entitled The Drama of Our World, Spectator and Subject in Early Modern Europe and Medieval Kashmir. She is a Stanford Humanities Center Dissertation Prize Fellow for the academic year 21-22, and we're going to find out all about her work today. Radhika, welcome. How are you? Good. Thank you so much, Zalda. It's so great to be here. Let's start off by you introducing yourself to our audience. Okay, so um, I'm Radhika. I um, I'm a comparatist and um, a writer who works on two very different cultures, which is medieval Kashmir and early modern Europe. Um, and yeah, I am very interested in making these thinkers. Uh, talk to each other, uh, but also to us. Um, and, you know, the whole translation of ideas across space and time is what interests me and uh, is what challenges me every day. Um, that's what I do. <laughs> um, so this has this has been a discussion on, on Twitter that I've been following recently, these, this kind of time zoning. Uh, so mm-hmm. medieval Kashmir versus early modern Europe. Can you say a little bit more about what that means and why you choose that particular language? Oh, okay. So, I mean, part of this is just the fact that I'm using English to, to write <laughs> my work and, and we just use conventions, right, to, um, to sort of uh, date our periods. Sure. Um, it's unfortunate that, you know, those words obviously carry a lot of weight uh, with them. And so when I say medieval Kashmir, I don't mean the Dark Ages, right? <laughs> but um, no, but what time period would, do you mean by that? Just to clarify. Yeah. So I am working on the long 10th century, like 9th, uh, 10th centuries, roughly speaking, in Kashmir. Okay. And, and what about 17th, early modern in Europe? Yeah. Long 17th century. Got it. In England and France, mostly. And so tell us more about how you ended up with that particular comparative uh, situation, because it, uh, let's see, I want to say it feels a little bit random, and then that sounds all wrong, but it does (laughs) unrandomize it for me, if you will. (laughs) No, I was just giving a a talk on this earlier today. So yes, it is apples and oranges, right? Um, (laughs) I am, I am trying to make apples and oranges talk to each other. Right. Um, The, um, it's not so random when you think of, you know, the idea that, um, you know, only people in the same moment should be able to talk to each other. That's a bit weird, right? Because, yes, I mean, cultures don't necessarily have to follow the same trajectory. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be at the same pace. They don't have to have this sort of teleological movement in the first place. Um, and... 
um, you know, so there's in, in recent years, there's actually been a lot of work on what's called the global early modern, right? So lots of interesting connections, transactions, um, you know, trade, um, oceanic connections in the uh, early modern period, you know, between different parts of South Asia, the Middle East, uh, the Americas and Europe. Um, but obviously those are historical connections and transactions, right? And what I'm trying to do is, 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 is an intellectual uh, transaction that did not happen because, you know, because of this chasm of space and time between them. Um, but, you know, uh, the whole project is predicated on their, uh, you know, ideas of subjectivity and spectatorship that um, I find uh, very interestingly uh, associated with each other. And so the whole project is basically on um, what um, thinkers from these two very different moments think about perception, affect, um, subjectivity, and um, theater, roughly speaking. And what you're describing is your broader PhD project, correct? Yeah, that's the dissertation. Yeah, okay. So tell us specifically what you're, what you're doing or what you have been doing at the Humanity Center. Hmm. Okay, at the Humanity Center, I have been, um, you know, trying to make headway with, with this project, actually. So, so um, I mean, you know, I'm towards the end of this project, so hopefully finishing soon. Um, but, you know, the last part of the project is actually about making these thinkers um, speak to us, um, you know, in the, the current moment. So, um, you know, how modern day cognitive scientists and affect um, theorists um, actually think about similar phenomena, right, today, and whether you can actually take the thought of these thinkers out of the locked chest of historicism and, and um, make them converse with each other. You know, a lot of people will say no, you know, a lot of people will say that these are historically bound concepts, and you can't just take ideas from one culture to another, right? But if, if, you know, if this thought experiment of sort of, con, you know, the possibility of conversation um, does actually hold water, then by the same token, it should actually be um, made to talk to us today too, right? Like, you know, um, so that's, I see that as the, the um, potential of a, of a comparative project like this. So that's what I want to work on in the near future. So are you are you are you imagining conversations between actual people or is it more about philosophies? Um probably both, right? Because I mean the philosophy, the philosophies are actually, you know, <laughs> made by these philosophers, right? <laughs> and, and thinkers. So uh, so you know, so I would have maybe a sentence that says, you know, if so and so could could actually read so and so, they would say this to each other, right? Um, but um, uh, broadly speaking, it's it's thematic and it's um, you know ideas based as opposed to yeah, it's not entirely theatrical though. There is a theatrical element to it. <laughs> I was listening um, to the radio in the car just a couple of days ago, and um, it was maybe two biographers or a biographer and an expert, I don't know, of Benjamin Franklin. Um, and so they were talking about, you know, his legacy and um, 
the interviewer said, you know, what would what would Benjamin Franklin make of, you know, social media or how would he respond to that? And and both both the people that were being interviewed was like, oh, we really resist this notion of kind of having to imagine. And then they went on for like 20 minutes doing exactly that because I'm sure it's very tempting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a kind of gatekeeping to that, right? And there's a kind of performative academies to that. <laughs> but um, yeah. <laughs> but I imagine when you spend a lot of time with certain ways of thinking and certain thinkers, you do get a sense of what they might make of modern phenomena. Because social media is just a thing, but we can, we can, um, I mean, it's a modern phenomenon because of the technology we have, and we'll talk more about technology later. But the idea of communication and, you know, those are not new ideas in and of themselves. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, communication is a very, very basic aspect of our, you know, existence. But, you know, Netflix, for example, I mean, that, you know, when when these thinkers talk about theater, they obviously don't have anything like films in mind, right? Because right. they don't have that. Uh, in that moment, but a lot of what they say can actually be translatable, you know, uh, to how we experience movies today, you know, and, and many would argue that that is actually the the more, you know, proper analogy, as opposed to theater in our moment, right? So, you know, my, my first Shakespeare professor in college, you know, gave the, you know, would use Hollywood, and then, you know, people use Bollywood as, as better analogies for, you know, the Shakespearean stage, for example, than theater as such today, right? So I think there's, you know, there's always analogies to be made. And, you know, as long as the human mind is about, is around, <laughs> you know, people will continue to make these analogies. For sure. Um, tell us more about your academic trajectory. You have your BA from Yale. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you did there and then how you ended up conceptualizing your, your PhD project. Sure. Um, yeah, so I had, um, I mean, I think, let me actually begin earlier. I come from a, a Kashmiri Pandit family, but, you know, like most Kashmiri Pandits of my generation, I didn't actually grow up in Kashmir. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in exile and, you know, always pining for my land and language and, and culture. Um, and so that void basically defined who I am for, um, I mean, still defines who I am. Um, and, you know, when I, when I got to Yale, it was a, you know, it was a gift, for example, first of all, like I, I was there on a full ride and um, it was unlike anything that I'd experienced before, right, <laughs> coming straight from India. Right. And I just sort of took the plunge in the, the liberal artsy environment of that place and, you know, um, I really cherish that and I really am grateful for that experience because I got to experience what it is to engage seriously with, with um, ideas and, and thinkers in a way that I'd never gotten to before, right? And so paradoxically, it's, it's via Yale. So even though most of my training was in the Western humanities, so I, I, I continue to read Sanskrit through college, but um, I realized towards the end that I didn't want to do anything that would be purely European, you know, because I thought that'd be boring <laughs> and, and be <laughs> like, um, I just realized that a lot of the things that, uh, that I found most interesting about 
poetry, about theater and our relationship to them. Um, those conversations were happening in the academy without absolutely any reference whatsoever to similar conversations taking place in classical South Asia, for example, right? And so when I realized that, that there's this gaping hole, right? in in how people can, and so that has normative value, right? Like when you talk about what is art, like what is poetry, what is theater, what is the subject? And when you answer those questions without any reference whatsoever to the, the thought of different periods and different cultures, there's a normative value to that kind of discourse, right? Like you're making a statement basically about what is valuable in terms of human thought. And um, I found the sort of silence on these on these questions, you know, from, from these corners to be very disturbing. And so um, it was a random conversation actually from my French teacher. So this is a class on French classical tragedy. And I was just thinking, what should I write my senior thesis on? <laughs> and he randomly mentioned um, um, uh, a French playwright um, who, a director, who actually took elements of um, uh, Kuriyatam and um, um, you know, other classical Indian dance forms, Kathakali, um, and used that to interpret Attic tragedy, right? in French, uh -huh. uh, and that blew my mind, you know, Ariane Mushkin, obviously, and that blew my mind. And I was like, whoa, if she can do that in theater, <laughs> you know, what can I do in, 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 in my work, you know? And that just lit a bulb, <laughs> light bulb in my, wow. in my head. And um, that's when I sort of decided to eventually figured out that, okay, I'm gonna write this scene thesis on um, this very interesting, weird, French play from the 17th century called uh, Le Véritable Saint-Genais, which is a martyr play, but it's very meta-theatrical, very interestingly convoluted about, you know, like what are the limits of reality? What are the limits of imitation? What is acting? All these questions um, and reading it through the lens of uh, Abhinav Gupta's aesthetic theory, right? And so that was the, the window that sort of opened it up. <laughs> basically it's amazing it's amazing that you then kind of ran with it and and that you've that you um either were given or maybe took uh, the space to do that mm -hmm. yeah I mean yeah I was definitely given the space to, to do that because you know I can't imagine any other I mean there are a few other spaces I think in the world that would sort of allow you to do to sort of you know take this this kind of intellectual leap and I'm very grateful that I've been in such spaces that sort of you know, encourage that, you know, because that can't be said about, but everywhere else. Do so, people assume that you're looking at the, the, the kind of the real thing, which is the, the French part of your work through this kind of somewhat exotic lens? Is that, is that how people perceive it? Or are you able to really get across um, that this is a conversation of equals? Yeah, I mean, that's always the challenge, right? Because the fact that I'm writing in English, again, yeah, you know, predisposes my work to be, uh, you know, lopsided in that way. And yeah. the fact that I'm writing in the West Western Academy sort of, you know, puts pressures on you in, in, in different ways, right? That wouldn't have existed if you were working in a traditional Indian framework, for example, right? right? 
So that challenge is always there. I'm, I'm very cognizant of it. I try to sort of um, deal with it, you know, and, um, and um, it's very hard, obviously, to, to make a conversation happen, but I really try to um, do my best to actually borrow critical terms and methodologies from my thinkers themselves. So basically, not impose my own critical frameworks on them, but make their critical frameworks speak to me and, and to each other, right? Yeah. Again, easier said than done, but that's the... No, that's fascinating. And um, when we had Charu Singh on the Saspot a few episodes ago, she, she works on um, uh, Hindi and um, modern scientific language. And, and you also see that interplay between, between the language used and how concepts are, are kind of constructed. Right, right. That's always that's always the case. You know, it's very hard to, you know, think outside of language. Basically. Right, right. Yes, absolutely. You told me you've already conceptualized your second book. Is that mm -hmm. is that correct? Okay, so tell us about that. Yes. Um, <laughs> okay. So uh, the second book is about why this conversation, this hypothetical conversation that I'm trying to construct in my in my first book, actually couldn't take place. Uh, so it's about the the colonization of education and you know um, the colonization of epistemological frameworks, basically, which all of us experience, you know, in our day to day lives in South Asia today. Like you know, you can't um, you know pass one day in India without fully appreciating what English means, um, you know, in terms of aspiration, achievement, power, money, everything today, but. Um, yeah, so in early modernity, this is this is when it's all happening. Um, the idea that an education basically means a modern Western education, you know, so that semantic transformation um, happened um, in a way that is imperceptible today, right? Like you, so when I tell people in India that I study literature, they automatically assume that I study English literature, mm. right? And English is one of the languages that I study, right? And obviously most of the scholarship that I work on, that I deal with is written in English. But, you know, I also work on other languages, right? And, and the idea that literature sort of necessarily means <laughs> English literature, that's just another of these symptoms, right? And, and yeah, so that um, project is about, um, not seeing it only from the, the Western lens, but also from, um, you know, looking at how native traditions of thinking about knowledge and reason, um, you know, were super active, right, uh, around the 17th century, but they eventually got superseded um, and, you know, subjugated, basically. Uh, yeah, so that's what the second project is about. I know that we're trying not to do the what if question. <laughs> what would Ben Franklin look like on Twitter? But um, what might education in India or in South Asia um, look like if it weren't for this push towards English? And English is the only viable way to a good, it's very complicated. Yeah, what a difficult question. Sorry. <laughs> the hardest question. Anyway. It really is. But I'm very curious what you, I mean, considering you're writing a whole book about it, you, mu you must have some <laughs> thoughts you can share. 
Yeah, I mean, I think of it in practical terms because I keep thinking what what is a practical alternative to um, to a sort of you know uh, homogenizing English language education today mm -hmm. in India. Because on the one hand, you need it, and on the other hand, um, it's omnivorous, right? It, it eats everything else, um, and the everything else is at the risk of extinction in a generation or two. Basically, that's how I feel about Kashmiri, for example. Right. Um, you know, like, especially with sort of, you know, one entire chunk of the population displaced and sort of spread all over the world, there's nothing holding you, right, to the language in the absence of the land, right, and, and, um, and Kashmiri is one example, right, there's so many languages that, that face a similar future, um, and the what if, you know, what if this hadn't happened <laughs> is always present in my mind, right? <laughs> like, uh, but in, in practical terms. So, but, you know, uh, historically, again, I have no idea, right? But because you never know what might have happened, you right. know, if, uh, if this hadn't happened, maybe something else might have, you know, and we don't fully know what the something else, you know, might have been. Um, but um, I think you would still have I think for one, the, 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 the sort of living Shastras of India would not have died, you know, <laughs> like the traditions of intellectual engagement that were present for so long, you know, for mm -hmm. centuries in India would not have been at the brink of extinction, which they are now. Um, the uh, sort of languages of India would have not been under such pressure to, you know, um, pigeonize with English, <laughs> which is what they do, right? Like you can't, I sometimes feel bad about, you know, when English infiltrates my home, right? To the extent that when I'm talking in Hindi or Kashmiri with my parents, it, you know, imposes itself. I mean, again, and then some people say, well, English is an Indian language, <laughs> you know, and I've heard that argument. Well, you know, it was made to be <laughs> an Indian language, right? So, so um, yeah, so I'm more interested in the practical way forward and, you know, um, you know, accept the reality. And, and then so in this context, I, I actually did work with a nonprofit during the pandemic that that, you know, teaches English to, um, you know, youth from all over the country who really aspire to learn English. And in one of our previous conversations, I think I, I told you, um, you know, one of these young people that I interviewed, you know, who see English as a, as a ladder, right, to, to, to success in life yeah. and, and, and to a job and, and financial stability, actually told me, I asked him, like, you know, why did you join FEA? Like, why, why do you want to learn English? Um, and FEA does more things than just teaching English, you know, but that's how they sold it to, to students because they knew that this would, this would actually make them come. Um, he said, well, if you speak in English, you live the original life, you know, which is, you know, it's probably wow. the opposite of the original life in my, in my conception, right? Right. But, but it just showed me how I, you know, how my thinking about it was so totally different from how somebody else might be thinking about the same thing. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, so you can discount that. And, you know, I'm all for the practicalities of learning the language to advance your, you know, the careers, uh, because that's 
just a necessity, right? For for so many young people in India today. Sure, but sure, sure. you know, without it being a part of our identity, you know. Yeah. Um, you have talked about a quote unquote techification. Um, we that came up in an earlier conversation, and and yet you are clearly very firmly founded uh, in the humanities. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I don't mean to suggest that there's just this clear binary between tech and humanities, um, but I'm I'm curious though where you see the synergies and how that plays out in your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, yeah, I mean, I think the pandemic just made the whole process of, um, you know, tech being in our lives, uh, you know, it just accelerated that process. And, you know, the fact that you and I are talking on Zoom, you know, I mean, Barrier was already doing it because, again, the barrier is ahead of the curve <laughs> in all matters tech, right? But for the rest of the world, you know, people had no idea about what Zoom was in India. And you know, they just sort of <laughs> had to learn it, you know, within the first few months of the pandemic. Um, and now that we're hope, I, you know, God knows when the pandemic is going to end, end. But um, I think the consequences are so manifest right in front of us that the sort of, I think I saw a graph yesterday about how um, the number of patents that were connected to working remotely, you know, using technology, they just shot up, right? Um, uh, after 2020, you know, in 2020 and after 2020. So um, I just think that as humanists, um, I mean, this is a relatively, this is a benign example, right? Because I think all of us have benefited from, from the uses of, of video calling. Like I, I use it to stay in touch with my family and I'm really grateful for it. But the all kinds of things, right, that are happening. And this is why in the CS classes today, they have um, what's at Stanford and both of the introductory CS classes, they have what's called an ethicist in residence, by the way, you know, because... I guess the fear is that you have, by the end of college, you have a bunch of 22 year olds who've taken CS classes like mad, right? All through college and have the tools and the abilities to do whatever, right? To, to, to do a lot of things that, that could have, you know, um, consequences for humanity at large, right? Without the consciousness of what that would entail. Right, and so I think that would—that's where humanists come in. And my worry, obviously, is that the ethicist in residence—you know—that is there, but I don't—I don't know how seriously people take it. And especially when you're out of college, you know, who's watching, right? So um, that's something that I think about because. The, even though you have this techie fuzzy divide, right? And <laughs> at Stanford, but also outside Stanford. And so the humanities become, are, as the humanities become more and more dinosaur-like by, by the day to the rest of the world, accelerated partly by the, by the pandemic. Um, I just think that it's even more important for humanists to be part of the conversation, right? To be, uh, because, you know, the, the linguistic, cultural, sensitivity that that humanists bring to the table is hard to find right elsewhere and so yeah now we the fuzzies are we the non-tech is it techie versus fuzzy yeah they call us the fuzzies 
we don't have hard presets, so we're the fuzzies. <laughs> <laughs> so. There seems to be this um, kind of um, uh, impetus towards trying to humanize the, the tech world. So right. can we teach robots to have feelings? No, we had a lecture at the Humanity Center here just about that, like about, you know, whether robots can feel pain. And, you know, yes, exactly. We, yeah. Um, so it feels like they need us more than we need them. I guess that's where I want to end up. That's I want the conclusion to be that. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I mean, this reminds me, <laughs> um, I did actually, you know, just in terms of what's all the cool stuff that's happening at Stanford and maybe not so cool stuff. You're also teaching robots emotion. You know, you're teaching, you're teaching them. You're feeding them Netflix slide by, you know, like microsecond by microsecond. Um, you're teaching them what emotional states a normal human being, quote unquote, would uh, experience and deduce from watching those same scenes. And you're teaching, you know, via machine learning, you're teaching uh, robots to do the same to you know, come to similar um, conclusions, right? So you're teaching them to be, you know, to to manipulate affect basically, to be moved, but also to to be um, capable of dealing with emotions, right? In a way that could be super dangerous, you know, <laughs> like you're, you know, there can be many consequences to that kind of um, phenomena. But it's happening, right? It's happening under our noses and we seem to know little about it, right? For the most part, you know, as we do our sort of library research. Um, and, um, and this is at Stanford, you know, where this is, you know, the sort of interdepartmental chasms that exist in every university exist here as well, right? So, so, the, so you can continue life and work without being fully aware of what's going on around you. And, um, I just think that those bridges need to be built and um, and humanists need to be involved. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate you making that a focus um, of your work. And I think that, I mean, the humanity center is obviously about the humanities, but I do see it as having a role in creating some of these bridges and putting people in conversation with each other and then also bringing in people from the quote unquote non-fuzzy side of. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just want to finalize. I just want to finish by asking you what's next for you. What do the next couple of years look like for Radhika Cole? <laughs> okay, I wish I could actually give you the answer. To that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I ask myself every day. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> um, it's not fun predicting the future. Well, creating conversations between. <laughs> 9th century Kashmir and 17th century France. You could you can handle this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I well, I'm uh, the next few months. I'm hopefully finishing the body chapters. I mean, probably yeah, chapter and a half left um, in the body per se of uh, of the of the dissertation, and then I'm here uh, at the Humanity Center again for next academic year. As part Congratulations, of that's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, they gave me another fellowship because I think they don't know what to do with me. <laughs> yeah. Take it, take it. Yeah. But this is the career launch fellowship. And I think next year I'm going to be working primarily on 
um, the conclusion part that we just talked about, which is yeah. how to make these ideas legible to modern day um, cognitive science. Yeah, so I'm sure that'll take a lot of work um, because you know it's 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 an old area of interest, but but new in terms of research and um, and yes, I do want to start um, second book project research too. So yeah. I just don't, you know, apart from the fact that I'm here at Stanford till June 23, I have no idea, you know, <laughs> physically where That's, I'm I feel that, and, you know, the, the, the future is, uh, is unclear. We learned that in the past few years, right? Not to make too many yeah. plans. So I feel yeah, June 2023, yeah. it's, it's, it's good enough. And congratulations <laughs> on that. Well, thank you so much for taking time out today to talk to me about your various projects. Thank you so uh, and I wish you very well. Thank you, Lalita. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you to Soham Shiva for the music at the start and end of the Saspot and to Simrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.